Hi everyone, Michaela, Cecilia, and Anitra here. And we're so excited for you to join us on our podcast, MedLegs, finding your footing as a first generation and or low income student in medicine. We're all FGLI students ourselves, which is an acronym for first generation and or low income. And we attend the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. We know that being FGLI in higher education can be isolating at times. Our goal with this podcast is to build a community of support for FGLI students through the sharing of success stories, advice, experiences, and the like. Every episode, we, along with a number of special guests, are going to be sharing our perspectives about navigating a career in medicine as FGLI individuals. We hope you're as excited for these conversations as we are. everyone. I'm Michaela. I'm Cecilia. And I'm Anitra. And, and welcome, welcome to MedLegs. We're so happy you're able to join us for our second episode overall, but our first episode with a special guest. That's right. Joining us today is Dr. Niha Vapiwala, a FGLI student herself and now the Associate Dean of Admissions at the Perlman School of Medicine, as well as our faculty advisor to the Penn Med FGLI student group. We know Dr. Wapiwala has a unique story to share with us about her own journey in medicine, one that we hope to feature in a future episode. But today, since we're in the midst of a new application season, we'll be talking about some of the concerns we had when applying to medical school as FGLI students. Hi there. Hi, Dr. Vapuwala. Thank you for joining us today on the show. We're so excited to have you. You've been an incredible ally to the group, and we're excited to hear your perspective on the admissions process during this time. Well, I would say on behalf of all of us at the medical school, students, staff, faculty, I want to thank you guys for this incredible idea and for taking the initiative during this crazy time to think about ways that we can connect and that we can get this important information out there. So I'm honored to be here. (laughs) And we're honored to have you. (laughs) So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background in medicine um, as an FGLI student, and maybe a little bit about your current role as the Associate Dean of Admissions at Penn? Sure. Yeah. So um, I was born in India and uh, came here at a relatively young age and, um, you know, all through my school time in the U.S., you know, kind of had no particular notion of the American dream other than just reliving the American dream. You're here, you're getting this education and uh, take advantage of that fully. And so when high school rolled around and it came time to think about college, uh, you know, I know at the time it was very popular to consider these programs that were straight into medical school. So you could kind of do three years undergrad, four years medical school and have guaranteed admission. That was kind of quite popular at the time. And I distinctly recall not being able to even make that decision. I couldn't even quite articulate if I would be pre-med because I just felt that I had no role models other than my pediatrician, who was actually just our family doc. And I think he, you know, occasionally saw me and my brother. So it wasn't really anybody in the family to to kind of say, yeah, you know what, you can do this, or here's what a career in medicine entails. And and obviously I could go to other sources, um, you know, that weren't in my family or that weren't immediately known, but but I think there was that intimidation that now I look back and think, wow, how my life could have been different if, I, if I'd known from the get-go. Long story short, I, I kept an open mind. I did not pursue those programs. I felt that I don't know if medicine's the right career path for me, and I need to learn more about it. And 
long story short, I, I did, um, you know, major in Hispanic studies, but also did my pre-med requirements and ultimately was so grateful to come to, to the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. I, I just remember once I made that decision to go to medical school and, and did the application process and went around, there were definitely folks interviewing with me, my colleagues who were very familiar with the medical school environment and with medical school in general. And I kind of always felt a little bit of lack of that advantage other than my you know, brief college experiences. But at Penn, I always felt so incredibly welcome, despite whatever differences we all had. I felt like the student body and the faculty and the staff embraced all of those differences. And the fact that I had been very interested in teaching rather than necessarily research was not seen as, as a problem or as something weird. Anyway, that, that sense of inclusiveness, even back then, I felt, and that's why I chose to stay at Penn for medical school, to come to Penn for medical school and to stay on as faculty. And then, of course, in my role in giving back to the admissions community um, that did so much for me during my time here, I worked as an interviewer through medical school and then through my years as a junior faculty member. And, you know, with our new uh, vice dean for education, you know, she really saw my role, Dr. Susie Rose saw my role potentially expanding in, in the world of admissions. And so lo and behold, here I am, the Associate <laughs> of Admissions. Uh, and a very important aspect, independent of that role, is my ability to help be one of the advisors to this group, to lift us up and, and all of the students that have a sense of wanting a community that brings us together based on our different backgrounds and not having had that sense of entitlement or that sense of absolute written in the stars, of course, I'm going to go follow in this legacy. You know, um, I think that's an important way in which we can connect. And so it's, it's my privilege to be able to be your advisor as well. Absolutely. I mean, we're just excited that, you know, you're in this new role. I mean, you're such an advocate for us. And I mean, just hearing your story is incredibly inspiring. And hopefully at some point in the future, we'll be able to pick your brain a little bit more about that. Yeah, um, sure. yeah. but just to segue, uh, kind of what you were saying towards the end of um, that, you know, why do you think from your perspective, why do you think it's important to increase the representation of, of FGLI students in medicine? So I think one aspect of patient care that we don't always pay attention to, but has been incredibly well documented in the literature, is this issue of patient compliance and what's called trust in the healthcare system. And while we might think about these things as, oh, yes, of course, it's important for patients to trust their doctors and nurses, it's important for them to comply, the way in which that actually works at the patient level and at the individual communities is very much driven by what's called racial and social and ethnic concordance. This idea that you need to be able to relate to the people whom you care for. And in turn, the people whom you care for need to feel that you understand where they're coming from. And it's not entirely fair to ever look at someone and make that assumption ever. But I do think that patients need to know that if they're in a situation where they can't afford that medication that you're chiding them for not taking, or they can't understand the instructions that you sent them home with and feel frustrated when they don't follow those instructions, that when there's, uh, you know, perhaps concerns about that disparity between health literacy and just ability to relate, that you are going to have suboptimal care. And it has been shown time and time again that patients who feel 
that their doctors look like them or not so much look like them, but have lived a life that can help them understand their current circumstances, that they come from similar backgrounds, that they understand and can relate to the socioeconomic and other barriers that influence healthcare. To the extent that providers can do that and can do that convincingly and genuinely, care does improve and compliance with care improves and trust in the healthcare system improves. And unfortunately, oftentimes there are uh, certain racial and ethnic groups that have a history of distrust in the healthcare system. And that's a topic of its own, right? Um, it goes back to the history of this country and many, many things that have happened that we all look back and think, oh my goodness, of course, this has built, you know, the current level of distrust. So how do we knock down those barriers? We do that by having a workforce that reflects the patients whom we serve. And the only way to reflect the U.S. Census, this incredibly diverse, awesome country that we all get to, to call our home, the only way to do that is to have folks that can truly reflect the socioeconomic and ethnic and racial fabric of this country. And I don't want this to be just about a particular race or particular ethnicity. This applies to rural areas. This applies to areas that have certain uh, professions that dominate. Uh, it's not just one type of diversity. But I do think that first-generation, low-income student representation is one of those key areas where we have yet to make major strides in being represented in our workforce in medicine. Yeah, that's perfect segue to my next question, actually, for you, which is, you know, given that there is this very um, evident gap in the representation of first-generation low-income students among medical schools in the country, you know, how is this aspect of one's identity taken into account when considering, you know, the application of a student who comes from a first-generation and or low-income background? Uh, you know, our listeners, a lot of them may be currently applying right now and wondering about this. And I know for myself, I've been hesitant sometimes to disclose that part of my identity because um, I've been afraid, you know, will that be held against me? So can you speak a little bit to that? Sure, absolutely. And, I, and I'll, you know, preface by saying I'm obviously speaking on behalf of the admissions process that we have here at the Parliament School of Medicine that I can attest to. But I do truly believe my colleagues in similar roles across the country are exquisitely aware of the importance of having a diverse workforce with the reason I just gave you about patient care and concordance being just one of many reasons. You know, of course, diversity also broadens the way in which we learn from each other and having the diversity of experiences is critical for a physician who's going to be out there practicing under all sorts of different circumstances that challenge them. They need to have comfort with different viewpoints, different backgrounds. So with that being said, I think admissions committees acknowledge some of the reasons I've just stated of why this is a priority. And in looking at individuals, this concept of distance traveled has become increasingly accepted and acknowledged and accounted for. So by that, I mean, obviously not a uh, physical distance, but um, the distance that one travels to accomplish what they have. 
And if you look at an applicant and, you know, he, she, they has accomplished a certain amount of extracurriculars, has led to some leadership opportunities, has been able to do certain research projects, but only to a certain extent because they also needed to have certain other obligations to their family or to themselves perhaps part-time job, perhaps work study, perhaps they couldn't take a summer to travel because of the finances. All of that is something, while it's very difficult for us to, to glean if it's not provided in the application, we are looking for it. So if you are an FGLI applicant and you're putting your application together, I say you need to not only not worry about disclosing it and think maybe I need to hide that, but I would say quite the opposite. I would say you need to highlight choices in your life or decisions in your life or perhaps ways that things just went out of your control as a result of certain other circumstances that are unique to you. That's not to say you're trying to curry favor or make excuses at all. I think explaining why you had to make a certain choice, why you had to turn down a certain travel fellowship and instead do this. The more you can tell admissions committees, the more we can get a sense of what you are up against, why you face these hardships, and take into account that distance travel and what you've accomplished with whatever resources you were given. If the undergraduate institution you were at didn't have a particular advisor in this, if your family members couldn't provide you with a certain amount of support emotionally or otherwise because of hardship we're going through, we want to know that. That defines you as a person, not just a checkbox, defines you in terms of your grit, your resiliency, all these catchwords that are always thrown around, but they mean something in medicine, right? They mean something. And I think you need to be able to illustrate that and, and wear it as a point of pride. Because each of you, to get to the point of even applying to medical school, have obviously passed many, many hurdles. So I wouldn't let the assumption that the admissions committees want to see something perfect uh, deter you from telling us your story. It's your story that's going to get people to see why you are perfect for that particular school. And that's not going to work for every single school because not every single school is the best fit for you. But it shouldn't be defined by the fact that you are first gen or low income. That shouldn't be the thing. It should be for other reasons. Thank you, Dr. Papiwala. I think that's truly comforting to hear, at least I, I, on my end. I can't speak for our listeners, but I, I, th- I do think that that's something that will hopefully quell some fears about sharing one's narrative, the world. So thank you. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I agree for sure. And it kind of brings up some things that I've always wondered about and wanted to talk about. It's something I really had trouble with applying to college or undergrad, and it took a really long time for me to develop, was the skill of how to effectively communicate my identity as being FGLI in my application. So I was wondering if you had any advice for students looking to do that in a way that's not, I don't know, me personally, I always felt like I didn't want to be like, oh, poor me, I couldn't do this, this, and this. So I had to really transition that and make it work for me and make it part of my story. So yeah, what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I, I fully understand and I, and I relate. And I don't know that I have any, you know, the right answers or solution, but some thoughts I have on this because I also remember struggling with this. And actually I had a typo in my college application for one place that I remember thinking, oh man, if I had just had, you know, a certain word processing system that I could have afforded or had a parent that would have had spelling and had English as a first language who might have been able to help. You know, you go through all these woulda, coulda, shouldas. And I guess what I've realized is, yes, you don't want it to become, oh, look at me and look at all the hardships I've had. And now I'm just giving you an inventory of all these things. And therefore, 
with the sense of any sort of excuses. But I think that what you can do, as I said earlier, is in painting that narrative, in giving examples of who you are and how you're defined to some degree by the environment you grew up in, even though it's not your sole identity, of course, and we're all multifaceted and there's so much more to us. I think capturing some of those vignettes in a personal statement, I think capturing it perhaps in some of the, uh, the groups that you may have chosen to participate in as an undergraduate, or maybe even in high school, maybe there are uh, cultural groups or other groups that could indicate that. Maybe there are volunteer activities you did in the neighborhoods you grew up in for other kids that also lacked resources. Ways in which you could highlight why they were meaningful to you, why you related to those kids who needed the tutoring, or why you related to the kids who didn't have, who had food insecurities, and how you did that in a way that isn't just a listing, but again, explains why you chose the things you did, the decisions you made, how you chose to spend your time. I think, again, the more that you can highlight that, it will come across to the committee, as will some background information that for better or for worse, AMCAS requires about your, your family. Do you live in a single parent home? Do you live with not your parents? Are you financially uh, you know, independent and or are you supporting others? I think in various ways, hopefully your counselors and if not counselors at your undergrad institution, maybe other active medical students whom we can connect you know, prospective applicants to people like you might be able to guide and say, you know, where's a really good place in the AMCAS application to put this? It's the personal statement. Or, you know, where might be a really good place to point out this issue is in this personal question that asks about personal hardships. So there might be some guidance that they can glean uh, as they're putting their application together. But there are a lot of different ways to communicate it in the application without it feeling like a litany of just look at me and look at all these things I had to endure. That makes sense. Yeah. And I love that you started talking about the ways that applicants can look to others for help. Because my next question is actually about what sort of support and resources students should be looking for in the medical schools that they're applying to. So this can be things that Penn does, as well as other medical schools that you know of, um, in order to support their FGLI students throughout the application cycle. Yeah. So again, I think this is something that with thankfully with increasing attention to this group, to this identity that has to happen and is going to take time to catch up with other initiatives that are, um, that have been around for longer. For example, gender equity. And again, unfortunately, it's generally by the binomial old system. But again, even if you look back and say, well, when the decision was made that there should be more female identifying cisgender students at medical school, efforts were made. And we are now at a point where it took time, but we're now at a point where it's equal, if not exceeding those that identify as male. And similarly, you can hopefully see some progress in certain ethnic groups that are underrepresented. I think with FGLI, as we start to pay more attention to this distinction that is not based on one's color and is not simply a zip code issue, but is so much more than that. Once we start looking at that and having undergraduate institutions that have groups for this, that recognize that this is not something you have to hide from, that we're here, I'm hopeful that we can reach out, for example, at Penn through our undergrad community. And I know through Lift Us Up, we've done that very thing through some of your colleagues who have helped to work with the undergrad folks who are considering pre-med and reached out to them early and often to say, listen, 
here. We are in medical school. We got here. We did this. We have faculty. And here's a list of our faculty who are first-gen low-income when they were going through what you're going through. Reach out to us. And I think the more we can do that kind of grassroots effort at the undergraduate level with the affiliated medical school, and then for those undergraduates or people in um, colleges that maybe they're going part-time right now, maybe they're doing their post-bac and they're working and they're not in college, if we can find ways through their through the alum network for where they did get their bachelor's degree, maybe we could, through that route, again, develop some networks that would help advise, would help guide and say, here's what worked for us. Here's who you can talk to at this medical school that I go to in our diversity office, in our admissions office, because we have folks that are more than happy. And if I get emails from folks that are asking for advice and guidance, you know, I'm more than happy to help direct them or guide them directly or guide them to others that can help them. So I think it's a matter of letting them know we're out there, letting them know we're out there at every level, medical, student, and onwards, and reaching those undergraduates, those people in post-bac programs, those people who are even thinking in high school, do I want to pursue this? STEM educational programs that happen in the inner city, for example, here in Philadelphia, are uh, an outreach plan of mine to reach out to these folks and say, listen, you're in high school, you're thinking about this, you don't have anyone in your family who's finished college, maybe they haven't finished high school. That doesn't have to be your story, and here's why. I truly believe that kind of connection has to be done before we can have something national that works, right? You need people that you can see and feel and hear in front of you who live your life, who came from your school, who came from your city. I think that's the most effective way. Yeah, I agree. Having people that you can look to and talk to is just very powerful. And I think it's a lot of what has to do with what other students who aren't FGLI maybe have at their disposal. They just have more people to talk to and bridge those gaps in knowledge that we kind of find that we're, we have. That's right. So thank you, Dr. Vapiwala, on your advice on how FGLI students can present their experiences to the medical admissions teams and some resources that even high school students can seek out if they're thinking about applying to medical school. I wanted to focus on yeah. the finances and the logistics of applying to medical school because it's expensive. The application process with the cost to take the MCAT and the interviews and going to places around the country and getting business casual attire yeah. to yeah. do the interviews um, can be expensive. So I have kind of a two-part question. The first is what resources financial or otherwise, would you recommend for FGI students to lessen the financial burden when applying to medical school? And what would you say to FGI students who are hesitant to apply to medical school because they're afraid they can't afford to attend? Yeah, this is such a critical question. And I think it's one of the key barriers to getting back to where we want to be in terms of reflecting the U.S. census, the patient population, right? In order to reflect the patient population and get folks in the medical workforce, there is so much in terms of financial and opportunity costs that we cannot handle all at once and fix everyone's problems and be able to get to where we want to get. So we have to be realistic about all of those barriers and try to address at every step of the pipeline, whatever is fixable. And I think right now, shockingly, one of the few things that COVID-19 may actually help with in this setting, and specifically with respect to your question, is the cost aspect. Because I do believe, and again, this is an evolving thing, so let's not 
This is what I'm saying is not in stone. Uh, it's an evolving thing, but I think where we are headed for this coming application season and potentially, if successful, for all application seasons moving forward will be what is, interestingly, a lower cost application season. So by that, I mean expansion of the uh, financial aid that's being given and the waiving of application costs by AMCAS and by medical schools for secondary application fees. It's not just at the level that it used to be, I think they are in fact lowering and the plan will be to lower and perhaps keep that threshold lower in terms of financial income that's needed to qualify for waiving of application fees. So that's one end. It's a relatively smaller amount of money in the large bucket of costs of medical education, but it's an important one, right? Because it's that gateway. It's that, can I even apply? Can I even afford to apply? Then when you talk about interviews, travel, wearing, as you said, business appropriate attire, preparation, maybe you're, you're a little bit nervous about, uh, you know, public speaking and, and all the things that one can do. Well, again, I think this coming year and potentially for years moving forward, uh, many of us at the admissions level are already talking about virtual season. A virtual season is important to have it, in my opinion, be uniform. You cannot have confounders where those that could afford it or couldn't afford it came in versus did the video. It needs to be all or none. And I think for public health safety, I think for the reasons of making this accessible to all students, not just ones that can afford expensive tickets or that can afford, frankly, to get sick, we cannot have that be a confounder or a barrier. And so we are all looking for a virtual platform that, again, if we can help provide applicants if they don't have reliable Wi-Fi, if they don't have a reliable laptop. I'm sure we would work with their advisors if they're an undergraduate or if they're currently working maybe with their employers to make sure that they have a work setting or some other setting, even if they have to borrow a laptop, to be able to conduct the interviews. And I think just in the way that a lot of the application is online, if the interviews are online, if the sessions of interacting with colleagues, right? Pen virtual preview, we just did an entire month online. So having uh, social meetups, having affinity group, Google Hangouts, whatever it is that we can do to try to reproduce to the best of our ability, an in-person experience, but reduce those barriers that were previously there of cost and time, time away from jobs that they may have this year to save up money for medical school. Uh, I'm actually seeing this as potentially one of the few positive things that comes out of this, you know, that comes out of COVID is the admissions process, not just for medical school, but for many graduate programs, right? If we can level that playing field and now it becomes about this interaction and not, you know, how fancy were your shoes or who did you know, you know, to get here, I think that could go a very long way. And the, the way that it's impacting undergraduate in a similar fashion, right? Uh, I think getting to know your letter writers, there will be certain folks that have connections that get those stronger letters. We need to be mindful about how if we level, so to speak, the medical school interview process, are we going to push the pressure downstream to or earlier in the process to undergraduate? Are we going to create major discrepancies there? So we're going to have to be mindful at every step of how this impacts particularly FGLI applicants, but I do have some some hope actually that it's going to improve the specific things that you asked about, Cecilia, that it's actually going to help to make it more accessible or at least no less successful than it has been in the past. And schools are more mindful than ever that 
families that might have been on the edge previously in the COVID era might actually be low income. And so just expanding our ability to support them through our endowments, through fundraising, through alum contributions is going to be the key for that. That's really interesting to hear that this pandemic and the virtual platform might be decreasing um, the barriers for FGLI students. Yeah, Yeah, hopefully. Um, I wanted to quickly follow up on what you said about not having internet connection and there's problems with that. Um, What are some resources that students um, might be able to access if they have problems accessing these virtual platforms? Yes. So one of the things I've already thought about with our IT team is ensuring that if you're invited for an interview, and by the way, I should mention that we're also trying to accommodate, you know, pass fail Mm -hmm. for undergrad, if that's what your institution is doing. And obviously that's not unique to FGLI. Everyone's in the same boat. MCAT delays, MCAT cancellations, we're, we're being mindful of all of that this year and how it might particularly impact those that live in rural areas or in cities with limited access, right? Depending on how they're affected. So that has the potential to disproportionately impact FGLI applicants, but it will impact everyone. So we're being mindful of that. And one thought I had is with our IT team, once you're invited for an interview, to have a sort of a trial run to make sure before your interview day that you have the apps that you need and the the bandwidth and all that. Um, so that if then during the interviews, hopefully you'll be in a, in a situation where it all works out. But I also have a plan that if during the interview, there's a glitch that's perceived either by the faculty member or the student interviewer or the applicant, you know, something happens and doesn't go well, that we will have the capacity, you know, to basically reschedule. And that's something you could never do live. I mean, it'll have to meet a certain bar. Obviously, you can't request a reschedule if you're not happy with your answer and want to do over. But, you know, we'll have some capacity for technical glitches that could happen to anyone, but may be more likely to happen to those with limited IT resources. And so I think that's another way we may help our FGI applicants to not feel disadvantaged. That's great. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and your advice. This has been a great time talking to you. And we'll let you go since we know you're busy. Thank you for, first of all, the questions are incredibly insightful. They're so important. Obviously, this is just my viewpoint, and I, but I want you to know there's so many others in our faculty and our staff, and not just at Perlman School of Medicine, but, you know, in the country that are increasingly being made aware of these important issues thinking about them, not just because of the pandemic, but because of groups like this, because of our organization, because a year ago and a year before that and a year before that, it mattered, right? And it will continue to matter. And I think we have to be extra vigilant with the post-COVID world of these issues because it may just heighten. And so um, I think to the extent that we can reduce those barriers, we can make this uh, an opportunity and a platform to, again, bring greater attention, not less. So for that, I, and events like this, I think hopefully will help as well. So thank you for hosting and thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, we know that was a long interview with Dr. Bapiwala. She really had so many great things to say. I just, I mean, I never wanted to interrupt her. That being said, there are a few salient points that she made which we really hope our listeners take away from this episode. The first is kind of the goal of this entire podcast, 
and that is that we want our listeners to know that it is possible to be successful in medicine as an individual coming from a first-generation and or low-income background. We are out here. We are out here at every level of medicine and medical education, and we want to help you get here too. Second, for those of you thinking about applying to medical school, we encourage you not only to definitely apply, but to also not be afraid to disclose your FGLI identity in your applications so that admissions committees can take into account what Dr. Vapiwala called the distance traveled to get where you are today. And when disclosing this information, try to do so in a way that highlights how your FGLI identity helped or guided you in your current and past endeavors and the ways in which it will continue to help and guide you as you engage as a medical student and beyond. And lastly, there are resources out there at every step of the way and our identity is becoming more and more recognized among medical school admissions committees. So please, don't be afraid to reach out to your friends, upperclassmen and alum at your undergrad or post program, current medical students, and even admissions committees at medical schools to ask for help and see what resources are out there. It can be anything from advice about filling out your application, a place to stay during your interviews, or even general tips about how to afford the application process and budget during medical school itself. I know that as the leaders of the Penn Med FGLI group, formerly known as Lift Us Up, which I know Dr. Vapiwala mentioned a couple of times during the episode, us coordinators get emails all of the time from administration and even our fellow classmates at Penn trying to connect us with undergrads who they know are applying and looking for an FGLI perspective. So don't be afraid to ask. We were all in the same shoes at one time and love hearing from you. And that's it for this episode. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. We hope you found this time with Dr. Vapiwala as enlightening as we all did. If you've been enjoying MedLegs so far, check us out on Instagram and Twitter at underscore MedLegs and tell your friends about us. Also, if you're looking to keep the conversation going with us or even with other listeners just like you, join our official Facebook group titled MedLegs Podcast or reach out to us with questions, suggestions, and overall feedback about how the podcast has been going so far by emailing us at medlegspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we hope to see you here next time with us on MedLegs. Thank you to Penn Health X and the Perlman School of Medicine Medical Student Government for sponsoring this episode of MedLegs. We'd like our listeners to know that while we are Penn Med students and leaders of the Penn Med FGLI student group, formerly known as Lifts Us Up, as some of our guests may refer to it, our ideas are our own. We do not speak for the Perlman School of Medicine, nor do we pretend that we represent every student's experience at our school. Thank you.